Welcome to the Veterinary Viewfinder. This week, we've got a special guest. Steve Dale is in the house. You talk Welcome to the Veterinary Viewfinder. This week, we are going to talk with one of the nation's foremost media personalities with pets, Steve Dale, all the way from the windy city of Chicago. And if you're not familiar with Steve, I encourage you to check out his website, stevedalepetworld.com. And you're going to learn a lot about this guy. He's very interesting. He's been involved with pets and veterinary medicine for his entire adult career for decades. Uh, he is a very, very important part of how we get messages out. And he's got a close connection with what's happening in the pet parent world. So today, we are really excited to talk to him about what are pet parents talking about? As always, I'm your host, Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm Dr. Cindy Courtney. And I'm veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And it is with my greatest honor that I introduce you to Steve Dale. Steve, thanks for being here today. My goodness. Uh, I, I love the introduction. So when I jump on the bus headed downtown in about a half hour or so, you'll introduce me as I get on the bus as well? <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. I am really good at introductions. But Steve, aside from all the accolades, awards, all the things that you've published and worked with, you know, the veterinary profession and pet owners over the years, what we really want to talk about today is what are the hot topics that pet owners are talking to you about? I mean, is it food? Is it is it convenience? Is it digitized medicine and Dr. Google? Is it the cost of veterinary care? So just to start it off, what do you think is the number one hot topic that you're hearing from pet owners across the country? Yes, to all those things, by the way. <laughs> uh, in, in, in the, what I hear about more than anything else, and uh, this has not changed in, as you point out, decades of, of doing what I do. And arguably, I mean, it's been said before about me, and it might be true that I intersect with more pet parents, pet owners, people who have pets, uh, than anyone else in the nation wow. uh, but between all my platforms. And the number one topic really hasn't changed, and that's the number one reason why our pets die, and that is animal behavior. Uh, right. Now, it falls into two buckets. Sometimes it's a curious question. You know, why does my dog fill in the blank, you know, turn around three times before my dog does number two? Uh, and it seems always in the east direction, you know, I mean, just curious type questions or uh, life and death questions. You know, my cat is urinating outside the litter box. This has been going on for eight years and you have eight minutes, sir, to fix it. Uh, so that's specifically number one as to what pet owners are themselves in their own homes concerned about. Number two is you mentioned it, pet food, which has become a religion to people. Yeah, and, and we definitely want to get into the whole pet food issue because I agree. If you want to start a bar fight, you ask somebody what they feed their pet. But let's get back to that behavior component because that is something that, quite frankly, many veterinary clinics, generalists, tend to shy away from. And we are capable, competent, we're well-trained, and we are that first line of defense. So let me ask you this. Why aren't those conversations happening in the veterinary clinic? Why are they happening on your radio show or on your blog? I love this question because it's the perfect tee-up for what I will be talking about at North American Veterinary Conference Live, their new conference in Portland uh, in a couple of months. That is the very thing I am talking about. And I think there are several reasons for that. One is, uh, honestly, I think 
Some people don't know veterinarians have any interest in behavior. And right. this is in a random order. Number two, again in random order actually though, some veterinarians truly are not interested in behavior. They never mention it to clients. They never ask about their pet's behavior. Uh, there's the disconnect. Okay, dog trainers do that. Veterinarians don't ever do that. People honestly don't know, and I think veterinarians themselves are a part of that problem. And not only veterinarians, but you know what? Uh, the veterinary practice, that's probably a better way of saying it, because there are many practices, uh, and Becky, you can talk about this better than I, where the veterinarian himself or herself may actually be uninterested in behavior, but there might be a veterinary nurse or technician in that practice that says, yeah, I have some behavior training. But again, that's not communicated, I think, to the client all the time. Okay, so that's that's. I really want to get their opinions because Dr. Courtney, as a as a recent graduate, you know, you were exposed to incredible tenets about animal behavior. We know that many animal behaviors are actually, you know, locked into a physiological problem, and yet these conversations are happening outside of the exam room. I mean, what's your take on it as as a more recent graduate? Absolutely. And what's really interesting is I am one of those veterinarians who loves behavior. I love helping people with their, their pets when they're having behavioral concerns. I make sure in all of my appointments to ask the question, is your pet doing anything you wish they weren't at home to try and open up that conversation? Yes. Um, at the same time, it was frustrating coming out as a new graduate because practice owners often said, well, I see you're interested in behavior. I hope you actually won't do much of that here because that's a big waste of time and money because you don't make much money with those kinds of appointments and they take forever. And I was fortunate to have some continuing education with Lisa Radosta out of Florida. Yes. And she talked yes. about how you put on a behavioral visit in a way that can be useful to the clients, in a way that is efficient cost-wise, uh, in a way that can leverage your veterinary nurses and their experience and knowledge. And so I actually was going to bounce that question back to Steve and see if he's gotten to know other veterinary professionals who have found efficient, cost-effective ways of doing behavior as well um, that we can share with other veterinary professionals who might be listening and wanting to expand those parts of their practice. I love that question. So first of all, if, if you ignore behavior entirely, and uh, if you have the attitude of what you just said, and, and those veterinarians that you just mentioned are not, I don't know if they're a minority or not, but I don't believe they are. A um, couple of things. First of all, if ultimately the pet is euthanized, you clearly lose a client. Yeah. There's the ethical perspective of here you could be helping. And if you yourself are uninterested, feel that it is a money waster, which incidentally, it is not. No. There are a couple of easy things you can do. Number one, find a veterinary behaviorist or a certified animal uh, behavior consultant, mm -hmm. whatever might be appropriate. And there aren't enough veterinary behaviorists out there. So in many communities, there is no veterinary behaviorist, but there are other trained professionals that you can go to that you can work with uh, and there are many examples now uh, across the country of uh, veterinary behaviorists who are even working with dog trainers let alone veterinarians that are working with qualified professionals that may not be veterinary behaviorists but they're very good at what they do mm -hmm. and they help dogs and also cats the other issue is and and this goes back to what ernie asked me originally the reality is that there is Dr. Google. And I don't 
no, because there really is no data on what the number one, number two, or number three Googled items of pet owners are. Mm. But my guess is that number one is behavior and number two is pet food. Uh, and and they uh, pet owners go to Dr. Google. The problems with that, of course, you may be receiving misinformation, incorrect behavior advice. But moreover, I am telling you, if the cat is hyperthyroid, I can give you all the behavior advice and good advice about how many litter boxes to use, uh, how cats can get along in a household, where to put the litter boxes, on and on and on. You know what? If you don't treat that hyperthyroid cat, that cat's yeah. going to continue urinating in the box no matter what I say. So what I preach, and I do mean preach, is anytime a pet owner, pet parent, notes a change in their pet's behavior, see their veterinarian first. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, for some of the reasons we described and more, that's not happening. And here's one of those and more. You know, it's been said that uh, there are uh, no bad pets, only bad pet owners. And while I understand the nature of that expression, I think actually we've done ourselves a disservice now with that expression because people are embarrassed or and or they think they're at fault for their pet's behavior and it's not usually or at least often the pet parents fault so if their dog has separation anxiety is it really their fault of course it's not if if even their cat is missing the litter box because they have 73 cats in their home and one litter box I even then hesitate to say it's their fault. They're probably doing the best they know how to do for their pets and just don't know. Right. Well, Steve, a couple of, of us have already mentioned this, but I want to get back to, you know, why is this happening? Uh, Cindy, you and I know in the veterinary world, it's a time constraint. We just don't have the resources. You know, we've got a, an entire day full of, of appointments and we sometimes don't have enough time to, to adequately discuss behavior problems. But I think we're missing another huge resource and that are our veterinary technicians. Becky, yes. speak a little bit to like what you can give. I mean, as a registered licensed veterinary technician, I mean, you are my extension. You know, you are how I amplify my behavior practice and, and my practices. Talk a little bit about what you can bring to the table. Yeah. So, you know, I always say it, but this is an opportunity for technicians to champion themselves and their profession. And if this is a passion that technicians have, it's a great way to bring extra income to the practice. It's an it's a great way to extend the life and the quality of life of pets. And let's be honest, guys, a behaved pet is a better patient at the practice, right? Like I would much rather have a dog who listens and knows how to walk on a leash come in as a patient than a dog jumping around crazy and going to yank me across the room. So it improves everyone's quality of life to have pets who um, are well behaved. And I think that this is a responsibility of technicians. And we know what it is to really push behavior aspects to help educate our clients. And you know, Puppy, puppy, puppy visit. Puppy and kitten visit is the time to talk about these behavioral concerns and help them understand that that's the time to jump on them. So um, technicians can find some really creative ways to utilize this opportunity without taking a ton of their time either. Whether this is videos we show in the exam room between, you know, running that stool sample or handouts that we give the clients or quick follow-ups or emails. And those are great touches to have with the client. So we're not out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, that's I couldn't I couldn't have said it better. And if you're a veterinarian out there and you're going, wow, I'm just in a time crunch. I can't do this. Lean on your staff. 
And the practice I currently work at, we actually have a full-time trainer on staff. Um, She helps work with our rehabilitation side of our practice, helping train our patients on how to use the rehabilitation equipment that we have. And she also provides a training for some of our behavioral patients and puts on puppy classes, uh, things like that. So it's something you can add to your practice as well that I think can be a financial boon and can be unique, something different for your practice to offer. Yeah, and, and I agree. If you can employ people, do it. Otherwise, reach out to your community, find those trusted collaborators, and make this happen. Well, in addition to behavior, nutrition is right neck and neck with the top most searched items on Google. So we know there's a tremendous need and desire for more information around behavior and nutrition. So, Steve, without getting into any details just yet, what are the hot topics around pet food that you're hearing? Well, it's the same. Let me make a correlation with behavior here. So when clients go, pet owners go to Dr. Google, they may find behavior training that would make me cringe. You know, just misinformation, at least from my perspective, using techniques that are not positive reinforcement based that actually do more harm than good. Something similar happens when people Google pet food. And I believe even to a greater degree, it is a religion. I don't know how it happens. I I don't understand where people have become proselytized. I I think it has to do with a general mistrust in America of big business in general. I think the the big, big, big pet food recall from several years ago uh, encouraged or supported this mistrust. Uh, but for whatever the combination of reasons, people have that. And, and they go to websites which are on occasion veterinary driven. There are a couple of veterinarians out there that have some very popular sites that in my information, in my opinion, I'm sorry, rely greatly on misinformation or at least their version of it. So what they do is they take a bit of the truth and they may, and they may believe it's all truthful. I don't know. Uh, they're sold on marketing terminology or might what maybe what's the case in human food it's it's a mixture of things and when i have these conversations with the pet owners themselves it's like really difficult and i'm curious if your experience is similar uh, because first of all the website becomes trusted over the veterinary expertise which i don't get uh ernie and i actually once had a conversation about this science takes back seat to emotion right uh and in fact science can be a bad thing to some people which is something that boggles my mind and 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 it's very difficult to use science or logic at times to disagree with these people that are so entrenched in their viewpoints that are based on so as they will tell you okay this is how i feel and this is why there's actually a bit of truth there and to extract the truth and say okay but now you're adding in all these other things which are not truthful. It's, it's, it's challenging to do. Yeah, and I agree. It, is, it has become not only a highly controversial and polarized topic, but what is happening is this you know, pushback on science and evidence is, is, again, as you mentioned, mind-boggling and befuddling. I mean, Courtney, you're a young veterinarian. You went through extensive nutritional training, and I know personally that you've taken this upon yourself to even learn more and more through continuing education uh, courses. 
How do you feel about this? I mean, what's you know what Steve said, in my opinion, is true, but how does it make you feel as a young veterinarian? Yeah, and, and as I've mentioned before on this podcast, I think I have a unique perspective as well because I was one of those little pet store sales associates when I was a teenager before I ever became a veterinarian. So I see it from both sides of the table as well. And it is very emotional for people. And I always think about the way our pet owners approach taking care of their animals um, as being something where they get joy out of the care they provide to those animals. They take joy out of getting to spoil those animals. And so when Steve talks about it being like a religion, when it being with it being so emotional, I think that's partly why it's easy for people to latch on to these stories. The story about their dog being like a wolf, and so it needs wolf-like meaty food, or the story that their animal is like a person, so their animal needs this super high-grade human quality food, and why then science may become distrusted if that person is already inclined to believe that, say, modern medicine or science is uh, just chemical or contaminated. That's how I kind of see it. Um, when I talk with people about it, I walk them through kind of both sides of it and kind of try to pull back the veil a little bit and say, hey, you know, this this meat thing maybe isn't as great as you think it is. This human grade thing maybe isn't quite as high quality as you think it is. And I find that opens the conversation up a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's a great ap- approach, uh, Cindy, because at the end of the day, you know, we're not, it's not a debate. We're not trying to prove them wrong. We're just trying to shape their behaviors in hopefully a more helpful fashion for their pet. Becky, just uh, while, before we get off of the food topic, you know, what about the role of the support staff of veterinary technicians? You know, I think it's the why question. Why is this important to you? Why is this your choice? Um, and finding out what motivates them. If they just say, well, I, I don't know, the lady at the pet store told me this is the best thing for them. Um, you can get a little bit of, um, again, you can identify the emotion behind the decisions because they talk to you about it's important. So you can figure out why it's important. You can help kind of move them in a direction that is either, you know, more of a positive way or kind of help to address the emotional attachment that they're having toward the decision that may or may not be appropriate. I think we'll have to leave food here for now. Again, if you're listening and if you're a regular listener, you know our opinions were strong on food and behavior. Uh, I think that it just makes it that much more important that we talk about these topics because as Steve Dale has told us, this is on the minds of every pet owner that you're seeing. I do want to take two seconds to just air a quick pet peeve um, with the connection with pet behavior and food. For some reason, I love reading pet behavior books, pet training books. There are so many dog trainers that feel the need to discuss nutrition in their training books and to especially, for some reason, recommend some degree of raw food in their dog training books, which makes me have to take the book and throw it out and say, I can't really recommend this to anybody. (laughs) Steve, do you have any insight on why people do that? Or have you talked with any of these trainers or know why they feel so strongly about that? Oh, yes. You know, I... um... I just had that conversation with a very talented trainer who I hope doesn't listen to this. I'm not going to call her out by name. Uh, she's well known in the area in which I live and she's very good at what she does, which is dog training. And she sincerely feels that today's dog food is all from what did you, I want to get this right from animals that have been killed for slaughter that haven't been used and we kind of get the leftovers Mm -hmm. Um, and 
that is not quite true, of course. I mean, they're just, but she sincerely believes, and roadkill, that was it, roadkill, that we're getting roadkill in our pet food. Wow. That was wow. it. And, and, you know, I could argue with her up to the wazoo, and I have, um, and then she sends me these links, which must be true because it's online kind of thing. And here is, I mean, she's a, a very knowledgeable dog trainer. As I say, she truly is good at what she does. And when it comes to drug training, she knows a lot. Um, but yet, as, as you say, Dr. Courtney, she does articulate these personal feelings to clients proactively. And even if she didn't proactively, clients do ask. I mean, the reality is that at times there's more intersection between the guy at the pet store and also uh, a dog trainer than you have with that client as a private practicing veterinarian because they go in for food every couple of weeks or every month or so. And when at least they are in a dog training class, they see that dog trainer every week. And they don't see, unless their pet is sick, they're not seeing you every week. So one thing I tell veterinarians is use social media to make yourself available. Uh, it's advantageous because it allows you to offer, to get into the discussion, if you will. And I'm a strong believer in that. I mean, it's, it, and it really is no different. If you talk to veterinarians that are even twice Dr. Ward's age, you know, back in the day, veterinarians would give out, I'm going back, you know, their home numbers. People would know even where the veterinarian lived and walk by with their dog on occasion, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about 40 years ago. But we can have that personal connection today using social media. And I think today it's more important than ever before. And if it's not a personal connection with you, it ought to be with your practice. And one of the reasons, and there are so many, why I support veterinary practices offering puppy classes and kitten classes is it bonds the client with the practice. And it offers the practice early on for those that are able to get puppies as puppies and kittens as kittens. Uh, it bonds those clients not only with the practice, but individuals in that practice, and you become a resource. Absolutely. And you, you brought up something so true, which is there are other pet professionals who do interact with pet owners on a more regular basis. I've had a chance to speak to the Pet Sitters International group as well. And so pet sitters also interact with uh, pet owners quite frequently, and, and they ask advice to them. Are there certain ways you would recommend veterinarians interact with other pet professionals to help give them good information? I think we're always a little wary of doing that since we, you know, hear the bad advice coming uh, from breeders. I think we get a little bit wary that we're going to give advice there and it's going to come out the other end garbled or, or misinformed. So how can we make those relationships better so those folks are giving uh, good advice when solicited for it uh, by pet owners? Uh, I think that's a great question. I think the answer is a word, collaborate. And and actually, Merck Animal Health has a program that they're kicking off later this year or next year where they are going to collaborate uh, with uh, the pet sitting organizations, with uh, the boarding facility organizations. Ultimately, my hope is with dog trainers and other allied professionals, uh, maybe those who work at pet stores. I love that idea. Um, for example, in, in, when it comes to infectious disease, when the dog flu hit Chicago, H3N2, 
And I know it hit Chicago more so, more strongly and more quickly and unexpectedly than it hit any other city because it came here where I live in Chicago first. The expertise or lack thereof of the facilities, whether they be pet stores or boarding facilities, doggy daycares, uh, those who operate uh, even dog parks, uh, some leaned on veterinary advice and they benefited from that and worked with veterinarians. Others did not. And for those who did not, it turned out to be a mistake. Uh, in some cases, a public relations mistake because so many dogs uh, were sickened uh, at their facilities. Well, Steve, you, you opened the door, and this is another issue I'd like to, to try to tackle with you as, as we finish up our podcast today, and that is infectious disease control and vaccinations. So what's the word on the street from pet owners about vaccines? Too much, too little, just right? What well, do you think? of course, uh, you know, it, it's splintered. Uh, so there uh, are a percent of people, and I would argue over half of pet owners, their veterinarian says appropriately vaccinate for leptospirosis because it's in the community. And incidentally, it is spreading in communities, as you guys know, all over the country, maybe even more than ever before for whatever reason. Uh, so yes, when the veterinarian says, even if I've never heard of this crazy long word, lepto what? Uh, if the veterinarian says do it, do it. And, and again, I would suggest that's my hope is well over half of those that visit you because they trust you. Uh, however, there are a percent that is not insignificant that say we are over vaccinating in general and or we're over vaccinating our pets or go on the internet and say my pet doesn't need a specific vaccine for a reason that is only found on the internet that nevertheless that pet caretaker believes that's the case. And it's that percent really makes a difference, you know, and I try to explain that we don't have distemper, for example, not because distemper went away. In fact, it didn't because there are outbreaks here and there and there, and I can find them for you just doing a quick Google search, but it went away here only because enough people do vaccinate. So it protects the community, but more importantly to you, it protects your dog because it's still out there. You know, and I, I talk about that with dog flu where I live because the shelters still see dog flu. Well, if the shelter dogs have it, it must be out there. It's not coming from nowhere, you know, and, and I'll tell you when I go through it step by step, any of these topics, I would argue that a percent that is significant, it may not be half, but, but a fair number of people do understand when you present logic and take the time, and science at times, and take the time to describe why you are saying what you are saying. But again, there are a percent of clients still even that believe, oh, well, this is how my veterinarian gets rich. Of course, right. they want to vaccinate, you know? Right. So if you're listening today, you work in the veterinary healthcare field, remember, this is why you keep hearing this push by me and others towards individualized recommendations based on lifestyle risk assessment. So, you know, what Steve is saying is absolutely true and pertinent and really, really important. Well, Steve, I can't let you go without one final question. Oh, no! And that is about the cost of veterinary care. <sighs> that they're too high, you know? Uh, so what I try to talk, yeah. So, you know, what I tell people is, so I'm talking to the three of you on the phone. It's an unfortunate question. And you're going to have to think of a more upbeat way to actually end this thing, Ernie. 
but but uh, do do any of you have any of you had family members with cancer? Yes. Yes. Of course, you know there there isn't the person sadly over the age of ten, I think, in America that's whose family has not been touched by it, right? So what I say is, okay, think of that person and think of the hundreds of thousands of dollars for a surgery, maybe chemotherapy and radiation, a hospital stay of, let's say it's only a week. You're talking about maybe, literally, a half a million dollars or more. Sure. Really? I mean, that's true. For veterinary medicine, it might cost for the same type surgery, for the same exact cancer, for the same exact drugs, and a hospital stay that is exactly the same, maybe $5,000. Right. And, and people can understand when I do explain, in my experience, most people actually, on this one, they do understand, ah, now I, understand, now I get why Steve Dale says it's a bargain, why veterinary medicine is the best healthcare bargain we have in America. It's an unfortunate statement in some ways, I suppose, but I'm not gonna talk about human medicine and the cost of human medicine. <laughs> yeah. That would be, we don't wanna go down that road, but, but it is true that it is the best bargain in healthcare in America. And they kind of under, but here's the issue. Some people still can't afford that $5,000. You know, now there are many who can, you know, and they sometimes then oftentimes begin to understand, but there are people that truly can't afford that $5,000. And I don't know what the ultimate answer is. And what I have a discussion frequently, and I, I don't agree with veterinarians who say, well, then those people just should not have a pet. I, I just don't agree with that. I think that pets offer so much benefit to oftentimes the people that need them most, which may be that 85-year-old whose husband or wife passed away, who's now dependent on Social Security. It, it may be that person who's visually impaired and statistically in our society. Those people, unfortunately, uh, don't make very much money. It's, it's unfortunate, but that's statistically the reality. It, it may be for, you know, dogs love us, cats love us no less or more, whether you are a millionaire or whether you are dependent on uh, something like Social Security to live. So, and, and they have the same benefits and, and arguably, as I said, more benefits. So uh, I, I don't know what the ultimate solution to that issue is. I wish I had the answer, uh, but I do think there are many people out there that still say veterinarians are just ripping us off and assume that. Uh, and in part, that's our society today. I mean, we live in a cynical society and we are all ripped off, if you will, in our personal lives here and there. Uh, so, so I understand that. But uh, it's just not the case, and I try to communicate that. Well, I think that you're doing an amazing job of doing exactly that. And we appreciate so much that positive message that you're spe spreading for the whole veterinary team. I know you're an amazing advocate for veterinary nurses and veterinary technicians, and we thank you for that. And I think we could sit here and talk to you all day long. You have an amazing perspective, and we love to hear it. But I think that that's just about it for us today. I can't thank you enough so much for being here and having this episode with us today, Steve. It was so great to have you. Yeah, it really was. And you've heard our opinions and Steve Dale's opinions today, but we want to hear yours. Please make sure to get in touch with us on Facebook at Veterinary Viewfinder and tell us what you think. Also, follow us on Twitter at Vet Viewfinder. Subscribe so you can hear new episodes week to week. 
and find us on all different kinds of platforms. And don't forget to tune in next week and join us for another great episode of The Veterinary Viewfinder. Thanks again, Steve. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Bye.